Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Rebecca King. As part of our continued series on health and healing, we're discussing a disorder that affects an estimated one out of seven people, making it five times as common as autism. This disorder is deadlier than breast cancer and affects more people per year than car accidents. Yet fewer than one in 10 with this disorder will access mental health care and only half will ever fully recover. That's right, today we're discussing eating disorders. So eating disorders are something that people may have heard of in kind of the popular media or the news or things like that, but they're really misunderstood conditions. So eating disorders are really serious mental and physical conditions that people develop. There's different kinds, so it depends on what you're talking about, but overall they're characterized by being out of control with one's food and and body, and people become unable to function if they don't get help. That was our guest for today, who has a very personal and multifaceted understanding of the topic. My name is Rebecca Lester, and I'm Associate Professor of Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. I got interested in studying eating disorders from my own experience, actually. when I was 11 was the first time that I was diagnosed with anorexia and was in treatment. I remember very clearly thinking there's got to be some better way (laughs) of doing this. I mean, it's a miserable process. It was back then, it's better now, but it's still miserable. I mean, it's not a fun process to go through recovery at all. And I remember even then thinking there's gotta be better ways to do this. I had a relapse when I was 18 and was in treatment at that point too, and really became interested in trying to figure out how to communicate better to people about what this really is. Because I saw people were well-intentioned. You know, obviously, people who go into this line of work are very well-intentioned, but um, it doesn't mean you really are understanding. So um, as I went through college and then into graduate school, I decided it was really something that I wanted to focus on. And that was a big motivator for me and my own recovery and, and getting well, that if I want to be able to help other people, I have to do the work myself and 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 be well enough to do that. Since her recovery, Rebecca Lester has gone on to get her doctorate in anthropology. She then worked in an eating disorder recovery clinic for several years, collecting ethnographic research before completing her clinical practicum for her Master of Social Work degree and becoming a fully licensed psychotherapist. Today, in addition to working at Washington University in St. Louis, Lester also runs a small private practice where she specializes in treating eating disorders and related issues. From all these experiences, she has considered eating disorders from many angles, and she's still working to help dispel the misunderstandings and myths that pervade and even get in the way of treating eating disorders. Today, we're going to break down some of these misunderstandings and look at how the very system that is supposed to support those with eating disorders actually comes to perpetuate the cycle of relapse. So for those of you unfamiliar with eating disorders, 
There are four types recognized by the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is published by the American Psychiatric Association and is basically the manual used to diagnose mental health disorders in the U.S. So one is anorexia, and most people have, have heard of that, and that's the self-starvation where people, they eat but very little um, and often lose a lot of weight and become very ill and it does very bad, bad things to your body and to your mind. Bulimia is when people eat large quantities of food and then compensate for that by vomiting or laxatives or exercise or fasting, any number of ways. There's a relatively newly kind of authorized disorder called binge eating disorder, which is eating large quantities of food and feeling really out of control and being unable to stop to the point that it causes a lot of distress and interferes with somebody's life functioning. And then there's a category that's called um, other, what are they, they just changed the name of it, other specific feeding and eating disorder. And that's basically, it can be a combination of things from the other disorders when somebody's struggling with food and eating to a point that they're they're unable to function and they're really out of control with their behaviors, there's a category that kind of can capture that even if it doesn't meet the criteria of the other disorders. So who's at risk for eating disorders? Well, that's where the first myth comes in, says Rebecca Lester. According to research, every demographic is at risk for developing these conditions. So, so historically, people have thought, oh, it's, you know, adolescent girls between the ages of 15 and 19, which are still the, the highest number of patients that are counted. But more studies are showing that boys are definitely at risk and increasing risk, and women who are over 40 are at risk and increasing risk, and people of color. And it's, it's really, as people are doing more community-based studies, as opposed to just looking at clinical populations, they're realizing that this is a much more widespread problem than we thought. So um, I would say everybody's at risk in different ways for different reasons, but that you can't rule out people just because they don't fit a narrow category. According to Lester, these stereotypes about who gets eating disorders trace back to the Victorian era. If you look historically, a very clear kind of continuum between earlier perspectives on hysteria, and that got refracted into a number of different diagnoses when the DSM came along. And so anorexia and bulimia, well, I guess bulimia wasn't technically a diagnosis yet, but eating disorders being, being one kind of offshoot of that. And so a lot of the old assumptions about what's going on also filtered in. So, so ideas about, you know, that this is a conflict about sexuality or that this is a desire to regress to childhood or that it's a way of manipulating other people are still there, even in our biological or more biologically focused models that we have now. And the kind of trivializing that often happens, you know, and some of this association of who gets an eating disorder is like, oh, it's a young, white, wealthy teenage girl who just wants to be beautiful and doesn't eat. And so it's hard to take it seriously if that's really your perspective. It's completely erroneous, um, but that's such an enduring set of ideas in our culture that it leads to this trivializing and dismissing of what's a very serious condition. It's understandable that if you don't know much about it and you just encounter it, it looks a certain way. But if people take some time and talk to people who are struggling, then you, f you realize really quickly that this is so much deeper and it's a much darker and more difficult issue that's going on. This is where our next myth comes in, that eating disorders are only about getting thin or about getting attention. 
myths that stem from this legacy of hysteria. From her own research and experiences, both as a sufferer and as a clinician, Rebecca Lester has identified what she calls halo features that go beyond the diagnostic criteria in the DSM and help determine the kind of care individuals need. There's the, the specific diagnostic criteria that are in the DSM, but then in terms of how those are interpreted, can vary a, a lot. And this is true of any sort of condition, whether a mental illness or physical illness, that doctors make judgments based not just on the physical symptoms, but on other features of how somebody presents. And so it's a similar kind of thing. But these, these halo features that affected how clinicians were interacting with clients and how they tried to make decisions about what this person actually needs. Because everybody in, in the clinic where I was working, you know, had an eating disorder diagnosis, but that's so different for each person. And so just because you have two people with the same diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia doesn't mean they need the same kind of care. Some things might be similar. So these, these halo features are kind of things about how people interact with other people or um, how they express emotion or don't express emotion, how they carry themselves physically, you know, lots of different things that would go into these approaches that the caregivers would develop. Often these halo features allow clinicians to figure out that a sufferer's eating disorder stems from issues around things like agency or boundary setting and interpersonal relationships or other deeper, more difficult and widespread questions that affect every part of a person's life not just food. And these halo features become evident, especially in the artificial environment of the Eating Disorder Recovery Center. So in an Eating Disorders Treatment Center, you've got, you know, 15 or 20 or however many people who are all there together. And so everybody's working on their own issues, but you're also in a space with all these other people and your privacy is gone and you're being monitored all the time. And it's a very weird artificial environment and people respond to that in different kinds of ways. And some people get along really well with other people, but when people go to treatment, they're in the worst place that they could be emotionally and mentally, and it makes a lot of challenges for people. And so when somebody has a lot of difficulty adjusting to relating to other people or tends to get really defensive in groups or is highly critical or isolate or, you know, makes best friends with everybody. You know, there could be any number of ways that people react to that. And, and that becomes cues to the, to the clinicians about maybe what this person is struggling with. Depending on severity or need, treatment options for those with eating disorders can range from 24-hour care and supervision in a clinic or hospital to outpatient care where people come into a clinic for a couple hours in the afternoon, or even just once a week for group or individual therapy sessions. But crucially, eating disorder recovery clinics are where the myths about eating disorders play out on a daily basis. What happens when a condition, though deadly, is seen as a farce or simply a cry for attention by affluent adolescent girls who want to be thin? Well, insurance companies and other providers who are supposed to care for these patients simply don't provide the care these patients so desperately need. Insurance companies, generally speaking, some are better than others, but generally speaking, really, really don't like paying for eating disorders treatment. Um, it's expensive. It requires a multidisciplinary team. You need a psychiatrist and a medical doctor and a dietitian and a therapist because they're so complex. So it's expensive and relapses high, it's a reality, 
But as a result, a lot of times insurance companies will exclude them altogether and just say, we just don't pay for them. Or they will, you know, authorize four days or, you know, very little at a time, um, which ends up cutting the treatment short, which then, of course, provokes relapse. And that seems to justify the whole decision in the first place. So it's very difficult. And a number of families I know have had to, you know, fight tooth and nail to get any kind of coverage or have gone bankrupt because they couldn't. And, you know, what are you going to do when your child is on death's door. Unfortunately, even under the Affordable Care Act, which said that there had to be parity between mental illness and physical illness, eating disorders are still not considered a major mental illness. So insurance companies don't have to cover them in the same way that they do schizophrenia, autism, or depression. So ideally, yes, they would cover it just like you would any other mental or physical condition. And they would follow their guidelines that the American Psychiatric Association puts out that are treatment guidelines and medical necessity guidelines. And ideally, the insurance companies would follow those, which they don't currently have to. They can make up their own. So the goal is to get them to follow these guidelines that are set out there and actually give people the treatment that they need. And it's more expensive in the short term, but it saves a lot of money in the long term when people aren't going to the emergency room or going back into the hospital because they've actually gotten the care they need. Lester and other caregivers across the nation are currently working to change this policy, to see that those with eating disorders get the coverage and care that they need in order to fully recover. She's also working on a book about her research and experiences to continue to break down these myths about eating disorders and to help others see them for the serious mental and physical conditions that they truly are. For the rest of us who want to help, Rebecca Lester says compassion and curiosity are key. I think there's so much misunderstanding about eating disorders, and it can be really difficult to be interacting with somebody in the throes of an eating disorder. It's not easy, and people get mean, and they get, I mean, they're starving, and all sorts of things happen, and they're struggling. Um, So I think I would want people to have a deeper compassion for the seriousness of what these conditions are and and to a curiosity to really want to learn about them. And I think that will lead to people being more invested in making changes so that people can get treatment. The kinds of mobilizing that we've seen around autism and breast cancer and, you know, lots of other causes, we need the same sort of thing around this issue because they're just not getting the attention that they need. Many thanks to our guest today, Rebecca Lester, a psychotherapist, eating disorder survivor, and an associate professor of sociocultural anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. We can't wait to read her book once it comes out, and we'll be sure to update this podcast with the title once it's released. Until then, we want to thank all of you for listening to Hold That Thought. You can find more of our podcasts on health and healing and on lots of other topics on SoundCloud, iTunes, PRX.org, and Stitcher.